0: Okay, a couple of little things to comment on here at the beginning. One is, um, I, got, I found out this morning, for those of you who are watching online, that apparently our cameras have a hard time with this shirt. I'm not kidding. Just found that out. So, sorry, I'm not like moving around suddenly. It's just, I, I, <clears throat> I thought it was funny. So, when he told me, I was like, oh, okay. So, I think the church owes me a shirt then. That's all I got to say. So, <laughs> The other one is, um, I was hoping, and, and throughout the, the conversation we have today, I hope your eyes cut over to the armor um, that we have up on stage as we, as we talk about the invisible creation and what this great picture that Paul has given us of the armor of God, um, we had asked Colson if he would model it throughout the sermon, and uh, he just flat denied that, so we're going to have to have a meeting this week about that, but we'll figure it out. All right, so... Um, I also get to comment on the fact that this is really cool that Carly Manuel and uh, Manuel and who is our associate grade school minister and Kimberly Egley the associate preschool minister, um, both got licensed this week. One of the coolest things that our leadership board gets to do, in fact, I think they would say the coolest thing they get to do, is to have someone come in give their testimony as a minister. They bring at least a person or two with them to speak on their behalf as a minister. Then we talk about their role as ministers. And then licensure is a state thing. It's not a biblical thing. It's not even really a church thing, except that it's the, the state has a, authorized the church to do it. And it just declares to the government, to the state, that this is a licensed minister of the gospel, and we see them that way, and we want you to see them that way. And so that's the that's the conversation, but it's just a great opportunity. So, um, and we don't always let you know most of our ministry, I think now all of our ministry staff um, have been licensed. And so um, just something that's kind of fun to celebrate. So you can congratulate them on that um, uh, later or or now. Now's fine too. I will also tell you, I'm already starting to grieve um, losing Daniel. Um, And so I've told you about that when I read long books or study them or whatever, I get to know the character and I kind of Really look forward to meeting Daniel someday. Just, I just feel like this is a book I've gotten to know him so well. And as I'm as I'm reading through stuff, I will come to a section I'll be like, oh, I bet I know how Daniel's going to respond to this. And and it just, I hope you have begun to develop that bond with this brother um, in the faith as well um, as we've continued to unpack who he is and what he's going through in this amazing book, um, and to get to identify with him as we face some of the difficult trials and temptations and, and things that, that he probably faced as well that are common to humans. And so to me I just think that's really great. We get to know him well. It's been a great thing. We're gonna we're only three weeks out from Advent. And, uh, and so we're going to be, during Advent, we're actually going to be teaching about the birth of Jesus. I know that's a controversial decision, but we're going to go with the, deci- with the teaching on the birth of Jesus during Advent for those four weeks. And then in the new year, typically we talk also about things that are going on in the church, some core principles, whatever it is, we will pick up back and finish up Daniel in the new year when we get there, Lord willing, um, after, after we have those two kind of breaks because we're not, we're not going to be able to finish Daniel. We're only covering two verses today um, in Daniel chapter 10. Um, it's because we're going to see something. We're going to kind of hit this hard stop, the type of verse that, that should make you stop and go, whoa, wait a minute. I can't keep moving until I understand what all is going on here. And that's what we're going to get to today. That being said, um, we're going to need to stretch a little bit first. Um, and so I don't mean physically stretch, although you may need that as well, um, but, but I mean mentally stretch. So we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about some stuff today that's going to create some cognitive dissonance for you. You're, you're going to be introduced to some stuff that's probably going to have to change your thinking and change some of the assumptions that you have, and that's hard. We, we don't do that well right? We don't like when people tell us something new. We just don't want to know new things, especially past a certain age. It's like, listen, if I, haven't been, if I haven't wanted to learn it by now, I just don't want to know it, right? We get to there. That's a natural tendency. So I thought we would do some stretching exercises first to kind of get warmed up. So are you ready? Were you ready for these? Everybody good? You think you are. You're not. You just think you are. Okay, everybody's ready. Oh, here we go. Ready? Right. Vikings did not wear helmets with horns. There's no evidence whatsoever that Viking helmets had horns. Um, In fact, the indication is that that began happening during opera, that when they put Viking characters in operas, they put big old horns to make them look more dramatic, which even makes it more funny that the football team's Vikings have horns on their helmets because that's more of an opera thing than a tough guy Viking thing. So just uh, they didn't. Everybody okay? Breathe. All right, we're good. Okay, Vikings helmets didn't have horns. Sorry. All right. I'm just, I'm just the messenger. Ostriches don't bury their heads in the sand. This is not a thing ostriches do. Um, they never have. It's, a, it's been a misunderstanding for years. They just don't do that. Um, again, sorry. All right. And on that same note, in the biological world, lemmings don't run off of cliffs and drown in packs. That's not something that lemmings do. Um, in fact, where that mainly comes from is one of my favorite stories of media bias in all of human history. I think it is one of the most beautiful, hilarious stories that there was a National Geographic video put out by Disney, and the way they, they, the legend was that this is what happened with lemmings. That was a legend. There was no evidence to back it. They were supposed to go study it. If the answer was no, they probably weren't going to get a very interesting video. So they had children. They paid them a quarter each to go gather lemmings, and then when they got a big enough pile of lemmings, I kid you not, they pushed them off a cliff into the ocean and drown them and video doing it. And that's where we get the legend of lemmings jumping into the water. I, it's, it's, you can research this. It's, you've always known there was something wrong with Disney, right? It's just, golly. Okay, so um, just messing. Okay, so uh, here's one that this got me. Okay, everybody okay? We're good? The Great Wall of China is not visible from space. NASA has confirmed this. It is not visible from space. In fact, there are many man-made things that are visible from space. The wall of China is not one of them. So again, you got to be okay with it. Just let it settle. Deal with it. We're ready. Ready to move on? I know some of you are mad. I, I, like, so, I did this first service too. Every once in a while I'll do one and like people's face, <laughs> y'all don't know it, but your face is like who do you think you, I mean, like, there's a, there's a visible change on some of these and some of y'all's faces. I wish I could record it and show it to you. It's actually pretty funny. All right, so this is going to get a few of you, so just prepare yourself. The phrases, Luke, I am your father, beam me up Scotty, and play it again, Sam, never appear in the movies that they are connected to. I know, some of you are going to be, the first, first hour, somebody was like, I'm going to check that. Like, just, you go right ahead. It's, it's not there. I know. Breathe. Let your brain stretch a little bit. New information is painful to stick in there. Okay. Good. <laughs> All right. So let's transition to some Bible ones. I know. <laughs> Noah took fourteen of some animals onto the ark. Uh huh. I know. You didn't know that. You thought it was two by two all of your little kids' toys never have 14 of the clean animals, but that's because they're in error, right? That's that's not right. He took 14 of the clean animals uh, onto seven pairs. I know it. Messes with you, doesn't it? How about this one? We don't know how many wise men there were. Some of you know this one already. We know there are three gifts, um, but we don't know how many wise men there were bringing those three gifts. We have, it could be any, any number from one to anything. That many wise men is who showed up. They just brought three gifts. In fact, the, the fact that, that they brought three very not practical gifts to a baby shower indicates there was no wise women present. <laughs> that this is a, they would have brought diapers and, and like, you know, baby clothes. Men literally showed up with like, I don't know. I just picked up what I had some gold. I had some gold. So I just, there you go. I mean, how awkward. But that is a... So here's what's funny is that they, they weren't kings. They were scholars. They probably weren't from the Orient. They were probably from Persia. And there wasn't three of them. There was any number of them. Other than that, the song is like dead on. <laughs> um, so wrap your brain around it. We don't know how many wise men there were. And then the one that still to this day cripples me every time I think about it. So I just try not to. First century mangers are made of stone in Israel. They aren't little wooden troughs. They're stone. Everything in Israel is made out of stone. That is actually a picture of a first century uh, manger. I took that picture and I had to like continue to look at it periodically to be okay with this. Um, so I'm sorry to mess with your minds as well. I know you're disappointed now. you like the tale of three trees out the window. You're like, oh my gosh, that totally ruins that book. Yes, it does. Sorry. I just, I can't help you. It's not my fault. I'm just the messenger. All right. Everybody good? Everybody, you feel like your brain has been stretched a little bit? You're ready to to jump into some interesting stuff here? No, if not, I mean, I can't help you anymore. All right, so here we go. Chapter 10, verse 13. We're picking up in a story where this fantastic creature, this messenger has shown up who either is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, or is doing a really great impression of Jesus Christ, is wearing the same garments, is appearing as Jesus. Now, I actually think it's more likely to be that second one, and you're about to see why, but I believe that this is one of God's messengers, one of Jesus' messengers, and he shows up, and he is dressed in the armor of his uh, his commander. He is dressed in the robes, the similar garments, of his master and king, Jesus Christ, and he shows up, this mighty creature, glowing, bright shining, hard to look at. Daniel has already fallen down with this guy. Once he shows up and he says, I know, I know that 21 days ago you had a vision and you began to fast and pray seeking help with this vision. And you've been fasting and praying, seeking guidance, seeking help with this vision. And I immediately left to come help you. God sent me immediately upon your first prayer, He sent me to come help you. And I've not been here for 21 days, and here's why. Because the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia." And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now, I don't want to rush over one of the most fascinating characters that we get one phrase about in the whole Bible, the prince of Persia. What a fascinating idea. The prince of the kingdom of Persia has been stopped. Now, remember how he was described last week, this magnificent being, power, radiating with power and might and glory. And whoever the prince of Persia is, the prince of Persia had him locked down for 21 days. That's impressive. I, I always picture, like, I, I, so when, when Tolkien wrote his, his books, he would very much so use spiritual imagery. And the imagery of not only the Nazgul, the, the, the black writers, are demonic, but even more so is this creature, the Balrog, that's used. And, and they finally, you know, finally, when we had the computer generation power to do it and you watch the movies and you see what the painters for years have tried to create this image of fire and shadow and this terrifying creature and they do it so brilliantly in the movies that's what i picture with the prince of persia just as terrifying just as as awesome in power as this being that has shown up to talk to daniel but dark This one is bright, shining, the kind of thing that makes you want to fall on your face and worship it, even though that's not okay. And he's been facing the Prince of Persia, who I think is another great, mighty power, the kind of creature that makes you want to fall on your face and hide. And here they have faced each other, and this this creature, whoever he was, and I have no idea what he looks like, but this creature, whoever it was, the Prince of Persia, withheld him for 21 days, and finally Michael comes in, the archangel Michael comes in to rescue him, So that he can go to Daniel. And that's the part that that I struggle with the idea of it being Jesus. Obviously, Jesus can give might and, and can limit himself in any way he wants to. But the idea that Jesus would need help with the Prince of Persia is a little troubling to me. That's why I lean away from being Jesus, but others still do. It's totally fine. It's totally plausible that it could have been. What is a Prince of Persia? What is a Chief Prince Michael? So that's what we're going to look at today. And in the. In the evangelical world especially, we've kind of divided out for the sake of our own ease all the invisible creation into two headings, bad guys and good guys. And the bad guys we call demons and the good guys we call angels and we just call it a day and it's very simple. It's not accurate, but it's simple. And so today I want to unpack this idea of this invisible creation a little more. There's lots of different languages, used, a lot of different words used to describe members of the invisible creation. For example, sons of God. At least sometimes, this reference is, seems to be about spiritual beings. Rulers, authorities, powers, thrones, dominions, world forces, principalities. Jesus uses the word rulers a lot to refer to demonic power, and is maybe connecting them to earthly power as well. Princes, using Daniel and other places. Cherubim are mentioned 33 times. There's many different expressions of this type of invisible creature. Sometimes they have four faces or other strange appearances. It was a cherubim who guarded the Garden of Eden. It's those who carry God's throne. It's their image that is on the Ark of the Covenant, whatever that looks like. There are the seraphim, maybe the greatest of the created beings, six winged. And they sit in God's throne at all times, at least some of them do. They're called the burning ones. Then you have the living creatures that surround God's throne. These may be seraphim. You have the archangels, like Michael referenced in the book of Jude. Traditionally, Gabriel is added in there as well and even though, that's, even though that's not made abundantly clear. And then the book of Enoch, which was a, an important book, or the books of Enoch, which was important to the writers of the New Testament. They were aware of it. They had read it, and it influenced their thinking and their language. There's much more unpacked in there. Now, it's not a biblical text, so we don't teach from it very often, look at it for research and understanding, but to understand this is a, those, this, this idea of this invisible creation was very important to the Hebrew people, including in the first century. You also have a couple other phrases that people have come up with to me since the first service: watchers, ministering spirits. And there are others in their non-biblical terms. That doesn't mean they're not accurate; they're just non-biblical, like guardian angels. You get a weird reference to Peter's angel in Acts chapter twelve, but I don't, I don't, I don't understand it that way. But some people look at that as an example. Maybe the most likely is when Jesus in Matthew eighteen references children and their angels which are before the heavenly father day and night. So maybe there's some concept to this guardian angel that makes sense. Then we have, of course, the angel of death or the destroyer. Now, destroyer is a concept that's used, mentioned several times, and seems to be entitled for one of the invisible creatures that God that works for God, and its job is to kill. That's at least part of its job. The firstborn of Egypt died at its hands. It's referenced in context with the Jewish Exodus a couple of times in the New Testament as well. And then there's one more that I want to spend, we're going to spend significant time on today, this idea of the Elohim. So sometimes Elohim is a word that means God the Father. See, the Hebrew language, they often use words to mean multiple different things, and the context is what tells you what is being meant. So sometimes Elohim is referencing the God the Father or Yahweh, but not always. Sometimes Elohim seems to be referencing all of the creatures of the invisible creation or the divine counsel. So we're going to take a a little five-minute Hebrew lesson um, from the Bible Project, guys. Again, this is a a, a group that we've sent you to many times to look to, and they have a lot of information on this. I'm going to give you their little primer introductory video um, on the word Elohim.
1: Got it? When most people think about the story of the Bible... They think of a story about God and humans. But remember, we learned that there's a whole other cast of characters that appears throughout the Bible and plays a really important role. Right. Spiritual beings, angels, demons, and the like. Right. And in the Bible, they inhabit the heavenly realm, which is parallel to our earthly reality and actually overlaps with it. Now, all of these spiritual beings have their own unique characteristics. But here is what is fascinating. The biblical authors have one word that can refer to all the inhabitants of the spiritual realm. In Old Testament Hebrew, the word is Elohim and in New Testament Greek it is Theos. But here is the thing. This word gets translated in lots of different ways depending on which being is referred to. Angels, gods with a lowercase g or even God with a capital G. Wait, so one word can refer to any of these beings? Yeah. It's because Elohim is a category title. It can designate any spiritual being that belongs to the heavenly realm. Okay, a title, not a name. Like the word mom. Yeah, right. The word mom can refer to lots of really different kinds of people, but they all share in common the same role in a family. And then let's say a group of brothers and sisters are talking, and one says, hey, it's mom's birthday. They're using the title like it's a name. But it would be clear that they're referring not to any mom, but their mom. Yes, and the same goes for the biblical authors. They called their god Yahweh, which is the name revealed to Moses. But they also sometimes refer to him with the category title Elohim, using it like a name, because they all know who they are referring to. Okay, but don't the biblical authors think that Yahweh is in a class of his own, not like any other? They do, which is why they say things like Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim that is, the chief Elohim among all the others. Or they will say there is no Elohim beside Yahweh, meaning no other spiritual being compares to him because only he is the ruler and creator of all things. Okay, I am following, but I thought the Bible taught monotheism, which means there is just one God. Well, the biblical authors are claiming that among all of the spiritual beings out there, only one is the source and creator of all things, including the Elohim. That's biblical monotheism, that one Elohim, Yahweh, is above all other Elohim, that is, the other spiritual beings. Now, with all that said, we are ready to learn more about who these other Elohim are and how they fit into the biblical story.
0: All right, so <clears throat> here we are. We're going to start in Psalm 2. You're more comfortable with this than you know you are. Um, we're going to look at numerous passages that reference this invisible creation. An integral role it plays in our understanding of reality. So, in Psalm 82, one of the most fascinating little pictures ever. Here's where it starts. Here's your Bible. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, so you'll know, that is, Elohim has taken his place in the El council. In the midst of the Elohim, he holds judgment. The context makes it clear that there's something going on here, but isn't it wild that the word gods, so many of you now, this is like the ones without horns in their helmet, you didn't know it was okay to refer to spiritual beings as gods, little g-gods, but here it is right here in the Bible, only place, Two, how long, so this is now God holding judgment with his divine counsel, who he calls the Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, Adam, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, Elohim, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Again, it's this incredible picture of there being this divine council made up of all types of of amazing, created, great, powerful beings. The most ultimate, powerful beings who are created. And they're sitting in the conference room, or they're sitting in a judgment chamber, And God the Father walks in and sits down in the place of judgment in the chairman's seat and begins this board meeting with the phrase, how long will you judge unjustly? This is not going to go well. This is not one of those board meetings you want to be a part of. They are dropping the ball. Too many of them are in rebellion against Him and they're not leading the way He says. This is a real problem. We are comfortable with this in that we don't know that we are, but the thought that there are divine creatures, the prince of Persia, who somehow has authority over the nation of Persia as an invisible creature. And you would go, wow, this is the god of Persia. This is the, this is the whatever, whatever the Persians called him is irrelevant. It's what he is or who he is, this divine being. Maybe he's part of the divine council who is failing to do what God has called him to do. Maybe even part of the rebellion, I would assume he is based on this passage, That's found in Genesis, somewhere in Genesis 1 to about 10, is somewhere in there, or maybe before, there's a rebellion by many of God's creatures against him, the most powerful of some of his creatures against him. Now you go, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why would God put an invisible creature in charge of a nation? Why wouldn't he just lead them, right? That seems silly. Why wouldn't he just do it? Well, all right. Why did he put you in charge of your family? Why didn't he just do it? Why did he put the leadership board and the staff in charge of the church? Why didn't he just do it? Why did he put you in leadership in the community? Why didn't he just do it? Because God apparently loves to share his power and authority with his creation in order for us to grow and learn and engage and be a part of the whole process. Remember, one of the first things that God told man was, you are to have dominion over the earth. This is an authority structure thing. I'm giving you a responsibility. The earth is your responsibility. You're supposed to take care of it. In the same way, God has invisible creatures who serve him on this council, who are in charge of different parts, maybe different nations. We don't know exactly how the structure plays out. We're not given insight into it. But maybe the prince of Persia is literally the part of the divine council whose job is to lead the nation of Persia under God's authority, and he's rebelling. He's part of the rebellion against that. He wants to do it his own way. Again you go, "Well, then why does not God just smack him? Stop and think about that for a second before you ask it. Do we, is that what we want God doing? There is a rebellion, and there are spiritual forces of evil, and that's our enemy. It's a great thing to remember at a time in a nation that is struggling to realize there's no flesh and blood out there that, as Christians, that's not our enemy. None of these people are our enemy. The powers that are behind some of them may be our enemy. The power, the philosophy behind some of them may be our enemy, but it's not them. They aren't like him except that they are divine. There's something God like about them. That's what divine is referencing to. So, for example, uh, Paul is getting his master's degree, he's getting a master's of divinity which for a long time I thought meant that I was going to get really good cookies at Christmas time once he graduated. That's what I thought was going to happen, is that we would see, where's my divinity? I've got, I got a picture of divinity. No one? Did we, lose, did we lose people up there in the sound booth? Can't see. Oh, there's David. Okay, good. Yes, divinity. So here we go. And there it is. Okay, good. Um, I don't want to get behind on the, on the notes here. I thought maybe, man, when, when Paul gets a master's degree in this stuff... Think how good his divinity is going to be. That's not what that means. He's, doing, he's getting a master's degree in the things of God, God-like things. A divine counsel is a God-like counsel. That doesn't mean they aren't God-like. He is God. They are just God-like in some ways, these mighty created beings, the things of God. They aren't the God, to quote Groundhog Day. He's just, they're just a God, right? First Kings 8, 23 says, and said the Lord God of Israel, there is no God. O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Psalm 97, 9, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. These aren't just idols. Idols are separate. Idols are, are taught about Scripture. We've talked about this. Idols are treated as the things that stupid and foolish people engage with. They're just a piece of wood or a block of stone. Why would you worship that? But independent of that are divine beings, created beings, who sometimes sometimes they seek worship at the expense of God, and, and we're told, don't ever have a God equal with God. We don't worship any gods like we worship God. That's not how this works. He is exalted far above the gods, Psalm eighty nine. 5-7, through seven, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. That's another way of saying divine counsel. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? God shares power and authority with his creation. Look at this fascinating little account that we get in First Kings 22. This is so cool, such a great picture. So a prophet is is speaking, and he gets insight into what's happening in the heavenly realms. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? We have God himself on the throne, and he's going... Okay, brainstorming session. I want I want Ahab to be in an, Ramoth Gilead because he's going to fall there. But who's going to get him there? We got to get Ahab there so that he can be defeated. Any volunteers? Have we got any ideas? That's exactly what this plays out. Listen to how it goes. And one said one thing, and another one said another thing. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, "I'll entice him." And the Lord said to him, "Okay, by what means?" And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And he, God said, You are to entice him, and you will succeed. Go out and do it. And amazing. God literally, no, you go like, wait, if God wants Ahab destroyed, why doesn't he just destroy Ahab? Right? Like, this doesn't seem like a big deal. You're God, just do it. But this is not God likes to work through his creation. He likes to involve his creation in his work. God didn't need a brainstorming session. He wasn't going, listen, I'm flat out of ideas. I got nothing. Anybody got any idea? No, 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 no. Don't picture that. What you picture is an all-powerful, sovereign God involving his creation, including his invisible creation, in his work. Any of you guys got an idea? How would you do it? What's your strategy? Well, I know he listens to his false prophets, so I could make sure that his false prophets send him down the wrong path. That'll do it. Go for it. It's a really cool picture, but it reminds you that God is working within His invisible creation. In fact, what that shows us is, often on earth, what we're seeing as power, human power, and we, and we know this as Christians filled with the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit, is that there's a power behind the power. There's a power that is, is behind the power that we see, no matter what that it is. So Ezekiel 28, we get this great passage in 11 through 17. Again, picture this. This is a prophecy against the king of Tyre. And up until this point, it's clearly been against the king of Tyre. It's very specific. Verse 11, there's a transition. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Dang. I don't know who this King of Tyre fellow is, but he must have been something to behold, right? Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Oh, wait a minute. No, he wasn't. The King of Tyre was not in Eden. Maybe this is talking to the power behind the King of Tyre, the power behind the power. So let's go back. Maybe, when you think about who was in the Garden of Eden, you've got Adam, you've got Eve, you've got God, and then you've got this serpent. And the serpent who's seeking to deceive, to accuse Eve, and through Eve, Adam... You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius and topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground, and I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. I don't think this is about the king of Tyre. I think this is about the fall of Satan. Satan was the power behind the king of Tyre, and in his prophecy against the king of Tyre, it then begins to transition into the apocryphal. What is going on behind the scenes? What is hidden? What is there? And the apocalyptic, I'm revealing, I'm pulling back the veil. What's going on back there? What is the secret What's going on, the veil is, and what you've got is Satan himself as the power behind the power. And by the again, notice again how magnificent this created being was. Perfect in beauty, covered with gems. Ginger read a book years ago that I really liked. That I'd always all my life pictured the, um, the serpent in the garden as like a Komodo dragon or something. And then, you know, he loses his limbs and he has to slither around after that. And this book pictured him instead as a flying serpent covered with all these jewels and gems, this this physical representation of Satan. As it flew through the air with with its special language, and then it is struck to the sand, struck down into the dust. Human rebels, in so many ways, the story of the Bible is human rebels worshiping spiritual rebels. And continuing this rebellion and being on the side of the rebels until God reaches in and rescues some of us from that rebellion. When we think about the confidence of the, or the great and power and magnificence of these created beings, it, it makes us nervous to think that there are creatures, invisible creatures like this, monstrous, gigantic, incredibly powerful creatures walking in our midst, influencing the nations and leaders and us. In fact, there's a writer who wrote about this. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? If it was just us, We have no hope. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at him. His rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Ephesians 2 shows us that we were these rebels. 1 and 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That is the course of this world. It is to follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience this rebel spirit who is working within man to lead us astray until someone comes and rescues us. Who is it? You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He. Jesus disarms the powers and the authorities. He disarms them at the cross. Look at Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, Having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The divine council and all their arrogance, the created beauty that they had, all this power and gems and whatever it is, the members of this divine council that had rebelled. I always picture them before God shows up as like these smarmy kind of arrogant people that you sometimes work with in a staff situation. They got their feet propped up on the table, on the conference table. They're wandering in late whenever they feel all these different things. And then God the Father and God the Son walk in. And God the Father sits down and starts. How long are you going to keep messing this up? And God, the son, as the vice chair, sitting there at his right hand and him saying, you know what? All now authority is given to him. All of it. All of your authority, gone. It's now with him. He now has all this authority. He's now your ruler and you're going to listen to him. In fact, the day is going to come, I'm going to read this in a second, when every one of your knees will bow and every one of your tongues will confess that this, my son, is your Lord. When we picture that, we go, oh, someday my knee is going to bow. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it will, but human knees aren't hard to bend. Imagine if you're one of these created beings, these grand, mighty beings that whole nations tremble at them. You now understand why you have have passages like God saying, the nations rage, and God laughs. Like, really? You take yourself so seriously? There's a whole threshold level here that's just different. I I worked in a a mental hospital for a, a year or more, and there were truly broken, damaged, psychopathic people, people who you couldn't give a sharpened pencil to, because they would kill you with it. And I had to work with those people day in and day out. And so later in life, when I would run into members of a student ministry or you know, some guy who's used to being all-important in a counseling office and they try to be intimidating, I'm always like, "I'm so sorry. I don't just, please forgive me. I'm not trying to laugh at you. I just my level of intimidation, you just don't hit it. Like seriously, after working with people who really were out to kill me every minute that I had to work with them, you just don't have it. Listen, I don't mean that insulting. It's kind of the same thing. God's going like, oh, the nations rage. They do. Have you met the prince of Persia? Have you met him? Because if you did, you wouldn't think a big deal about nations raging. I deal with that guy every day. I deal with Satan every day. I deal with all of creation every day. Jesus Christ was placed as the new chairman of the board, all authority given to him, Ephesians 1.20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. That's Jesus. The ultimate, and no wonder he laughs when we rage. Philippians 2, 9-11, that's the one I was referencing. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth, whatever that means. It's all of it. Every created being, no matter where they reside, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So consider these mighty, terrifying, dramatic, fantastic, giant, shining, burning, blazing creatures. And then this one who presents this message in the name of Jesus to Daniel, and that's who Daniel's dealing with, is this mighty creature who comes to deliver this message. And Daniel's now hearing from him, and he's saying, hey, I tried to be here 21 days ago, and the prince of Persia stopped me. Fortunately, again, like I picture it, I always picture Michael like coming off his left, kind of off his blind side, and just coming in and taking him at the knees, holding him down, telling this messenger, Go, 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 go tell Daniel. He's been waiting 20 days. Go, I've got this. And this, this messenger shows up with all of his glory and might, but he shows up short of breath. I don't have long. We've got to talk about this vision that you ask. God sent me to you because he loves you so much. But listen, I've got a lot to take care of. I've got to go straight from you to the Prince of Greece. Or got to go back and help Michael with the Prince of Persia. Like we got to, and I'm sure that's what's going on to this day, that these mighty angelic beings are engaging with the powers behind the powers left and right, and all of them kneel before Jesus Christ, the one who indwells us, the one that we're on His side. So as we engage with this conversation, this, this blows me. So Ephesians six, the portrayal it portrays people at the end of a battle. The, the battle is over, and some of them are still standing, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The picture here is, is not a, of, of, of soldiers getting roll call. This is those who are left standing with the bodies thrown everywhere. Dead bodies all over, and a few of them are still standing. How are they still standing? Because they had the right armor, and they knew how to use it. They knew how to follow through with that. What keeps us still standing in the face of these type of of, of angelic and spiritual issues and warfare that we deal with, and we deal with it where it comes together, where the spirit meets the physical. How is it done? His peace, His gospel, His Word, His truth, His righteousness faith in Him and His salvation, praying at all times, just like this angel, I believe, is wearing God's robes, we are called to wear God's armor. And that's how we face these. So again, what are we dealing with? You can already start guessing. How's Daniel going to respond to hearing this news? That someone this powerful has come to give him a message and someone that powerful tried to stop him and someone else that powerful came in to help? He's going to be deeply humbled by it, as you would expect. We'll pick up there next time.